Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I was taught when I studied to be a guide, a tourist guide in Israel many, many years ago in prehistoric times. Because at that time, I, after the army went to study for several years in yeshiva, and I anticipated that I, I would be doing that for the rest of my life. And I said, well, from what would I make a living? I have to have something that I could work brief periods and make a living. So I went to study couple of times in the evening to be a guide. And one of the things they said is that you should hold the mic like this so that people can also see your lips, because people's lips are very important when you're trying to understand what the person is saying. So if it seems strange to you, there's a reason. Um, it should be very simple what is our attitude or what is the attitude of the Jewish tradition to people who are not from here and have now come here and they're living amongst us. And naturally, they have no roots. They, a lot of times, have no family here. Uh, they have no support system. They don't know the language and so on and so forth. So it should be very obvious because, as you'll see here, the Torah speaks about this quite frequently, comparing or telling us that we should learn from our experience in Egypt, right? You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you as strangers in the land of Egypt. A stranger, the word in Hebrew is ger. Okay? Abraham says about himself uh, when he's about, to, when he asked to bury Sarah, he says to the people in Hebron, ger vetoshav anochi imachem. I am a ger, a stranger among you. Ger is coming like Lagur is to live, to reside, a alien resident, a person is a ger in the biblical Hebrew. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you are strangers in the land of Egypt. And so on and so forth. So it should be very clear that what the Bible holds, and therefore what Torah holds, and what our tradition holds, but then an interesting development happened. And we see here that the rabbis of late antiquity, Chazal, meaning that from, let's say, around the beginning of the common era until 500, 600, um, and they take this same verse, if a stranger deals with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. He shall be to you as one born among you. And the Midrash Halacha on the book of Leviticus says, you shall not mistreat him. You shall not say to him, 
Yesterday you were an idolater, and only today have you entered under the wings of the Shekhinah. And he should be as one born among you, just as the one born among you is a person who took upon himself all the words of Torah by virtue of just being born Jewish. So the stranger, the ger, is a person who took upon himself all the words of Torah. So who is the ger now? Who is it, the alien that took upon himself the Torah? I think you're talking about the convert. Right, exactly. Right? So the rabbis are saying that this verse, talking about the ger, is not talking about the alien, non-Jewish stranger, who could be analogous to the Israelites in Egypt who weren't, the Israelites didn't convert to the Egyptian religion. They regarded themselves as strangers. The Egyptians regarded themselves as them as strangers and enslaved them and so on. But here the rabbis are saying the ger means a convert. Somebody who was previously non-Jewish and became Jewish. And if you go systematically through all of the verses that say you were in Egypt and therefore you have to be nice to the gear, in the entire rabbinic literature, this is only talking about people who are not born Jewish, who chose to be Jewish, and now they're Jewish. And you have to be nice to them. So it's only about their community. It's only about people who are now inside our community and so first of all, what is the historic background, as far as I understand it, to this transformation? The historic background is that from a certain point onwards, the Jewish people didn't have a homeland of their own in which they could be taking in strangers. Why? Because even if in Second Temple times uh, and later, a lot of Jewish people were still residing in the land of Israel. They weren't sovereign. They weren't in charge. If somebody came to live there from Greece or Egypt or Iraq, a non-Jew, they weren't coming to a Jewish country in which the Jews made the rules for everybody. On the other hand, there was a big diaspora, already in Second Temple times, there were a million Jews living in what's today Egypt. Uh, there were many Jews living in what's now Turkey and Greece, uh, in Italy. From the time of the Roman Empire, you even have Jewish graves in Germany, Spain, uh, uh, elsewhere around the Mediterranean. When I was studying Jewish history for my BA, I was told that historians believe that in the first century of the Common Era, there were 60 million people, that was the population of the Roman Empire, of whom six million were Jewish. And it wasn't that, of course, the Jews were especially, had high birth rates, more than other people at that time, but because a lot of people had chosen to join them, and the people weren't now entering the Jewish land, but they were entering the Jewish community. And this was the new gear, the convert. Um, 
so what the rabbis did was they took all of these verses that were dealing with the non-Jewish alien in a Jewish polity, and they were transferring this coverage, like you do insurance, you transfer the coverage. They were transferring the coverage to people who were coming into the Jewish community from outside and were now newcomers to the Jewish community, not the Jewish land. God knows, and we all know, that people that choose to be Jewish are making a very bold move and they need this coverage because a lot of people who are Jews by biological birth don't frequently act, especially in a friendly way, to these newcomers. Um, and the newcomers are coming from a different background, a different, and they really need these verses to say, as the rabbis interpreted them, we have to be especially nice to converts. And the context at that time, there was a great movement of people joining the Jewish people. For instance, you have here that Rabbi Azar in the third century said, the Holy One, blessed be he, exiled Israel among the nations only so that converts would join them. As it is stated in a verse in the prophet of Hosea, I will sow her to me in the land as if God is taking the grains like in these pictures of the person sowing their field and taking the people of Israel and distributing them among the world wide so that from this encounter will come new people who want to be part of the Jewish uh, group. And if you look further on in medieval halacha, you see that everybody is talking about these verses as, and they're applied only to converts. So Maimonides, if you have here at the bottom of the first page, in his list of the commandments, he has a book that tells all of the 613 commandments, the 207th mitzvah is that we are commanded to love converts. The source of this commandment is God's statement in the Torah, you must love the ger, but ger is he read as a convert, not as an alien non-Jewish resident. Since the ger spoken of here is a ger tzedek, a convert, he is already included in the commandment for the entire Jewish people, you must love your neighbor. So if Jews are supposed to love all other Jews anyway, why do we need a special additional commandment for the convert? Since he has now entered our Torah, God shows him additional love and added an extra commandment to love the convert. Um, if you look in the next page, Sefer HaChinuch which is a work written in Spain around the year 1300, also discusses the commandments and gives, he attempts to tell us the meaning and underlying thrust of the commandments. And he says, God chose Israel to be a holy nation and wanted to give them merit. Therefore, he guided them and commanded them about the ways of grace and compassion and warned them to crown themselves with every beautiful and precious trait to find grace 
in the eyes of all who see them, so that everybody in the world will say, these are the people of the Lord. And it is so much the way of pleasantness and beauty to show kindness and to grant good to one who leaves his people in all the family of the house of his father and mother and comes to take shelter under the wings of a different nation in his love for it and his choosing of truth and hatred for falsehood. So that's why the Torah wants us to be especially gracious and kind and welcoming to converts. And in our meriting these good traits, the goodness of Lord of God will rest upon us and cling to us, and everything will be good for us. So what actually happened is that we took, we, meaning the rabbis, took the coverage that the plain meaning of the Torah gives to aliens, and they pulled it over to the converts. So who's left uncovered? Everybody else. Everybody else. But at that time, it was no problem why. Jews didn't have a country of their own to which aliens were coming and were now dependent on their goodwill and kindness. So by taking the coverage from the aliens and moving it to the converts, it was no skin off the back of the resident aliens in the Jewish country because there was no such country. Well, so now comes the problem. What's the problem? That today there is a Jewish country. And in that Jewish country where I reside, together lots, with my... Lots of gear. There's a lot of people who are not Jewish and who came there to work, to make a living, sometimes to find asylum, okay, but, and, uh, for instance, my father is 93, my mother is 90, my mother can't get around by herself, she's in a wheelchair, and to her great luck, there is a woman comes from the Philippines in order to support her family back in the Philippines and send the children to college and so on. And she's living in Israel. And she is exactly the gear, right? The original alien who's living now in a Jewish country. But she has no coverage, ostensibly, according to halacha, because of the original coverage was taken away, and it's now on the converts. So what are we going to do? Okay, well, somebody could say, well, we got back to position A, which we used to be 2,500 years ago. Let's take the coverage from the convert and move it back to the original aliens. But now what? The converts are left uncovered. So, they need it. The converts need it all around the world that they need the original Jewish people. And the converts have made this bold and brave and uh, fantastic move to be Jewish by choice. Now, they, it's very important that the other Jewish people should treat them well and be especially kind and friendly to them. Um, so if we, we don't want to take the coverage from them and move it back 
to the original aliens. On the other hand, now the original aliens have reappeared on his, the scene of history because there is a Jewish state. So what do we do? Okay, that's the issue. That's the halachic problem. Um, and what I'm going to now do is walk you through to see that this is not a unique phenomenon just for the people who are gear. Okay, it happens in other places. And if you look on page, the next page on top, the Torah teaches us, you shall not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. You shall feel your God, fear your God, I am the Lord. Okay, so here's a blind person coming along and trying to get where they're trying to walk to, and some mean-spirited person takes a blog and puts it just two feet in front of this blind person, and what's going to happen? The blind person is going to fall down. That's a terribly cruel thing to do. And Torah says you shouldn't do that. You should, it's expressly it says that, right? But how do the sages interpret this? You shall not, before a blind man, do not place a stumbling block. They read it metaphorically. Before one who is blind in a certain matter, you should not mislead him. If he asks you, is that man's daughter fit for a marriage into the priesthood? Do not tell him that she is kasher if she is not. If he asks you for advice, do not give him advice that is unfit to him. Do not say, leave early in the morning, so that robbers should assault him. If you know that robbers tend to get up early. Don't say to him, leave in the afternoon, so that he might fall victim to the heat. Do not say to him, sell your field and buy an ass, and then you buy the field which you just advised him, so, okay, you're misleading him. Lest you say, but I gave him good advice. Those things are known to the heart, and therefore you shall feel God. And God knows if you misled him intentionally, and if you did so, you're placing a stumbling block before the blind. But this is a person who is metaphorically blind. They could see very well, but you're misleading them. Um, and then in the Talmud, it says, what does this mean? Don't hit your adult son. Why? He'll hit you back. And by doing that, he will be going against the fifth commandment, which is to honor your father and mother. So if you hit your son, who's big enough, he'll hit you back. You caused him to uh, uh, go against the commandment. And you look through rabbinic literature, the Shulchan Aruch, and all other works of halacha, you will look in vain for a place where it says that the person that takes a log between somebody who's, before somebody who's physically blind and does that is doing against what the Torah says, putting a because, they all take this and they use it metaphorically. Another case, there's a verse in the Torah, 
you shall not eat upon the blood. And it goes on, you shall not practice divination or soothsaying, different practices of magic or alien religions. And Maimonides explains what is the meaning of this. Although blood was very unclean in the eyes of the pagans, they nevertheless partook of it because they thought it was the food of the spirits. By eating it, man has something in common with the spirits which will then join him and tell him future events. According to the notion which people generally have of spirits, there were, however, people who objected to eating blood. They killed a beast, received the blood in a vessel or a pot, and ate of the flesh of that beast while sitting around this pot with blood. They imagined that in this manner the spirits would come to partake of the blood which was their food, that love, brotherhood, and friendship with the spirits were established because they dined with them together, that the spirits would then appear to them in dreams and inform them of coming events and be favorable to them. So to eat on the blood is some kind of pagan practice of magic in order to invoke and become friendly with various demons and spirits. So that's the plain meaning of Torah, but we might thus expect that the rabbis would teach us what? You're not allowed to do that. Don't take the blood and put it all around for the demons and spirits. The rabbis nowhere talk about that. What do they do? They say, how do we know that if you eat from an animal, you had shechita, but the animal is still alive, and you eat from it, you are in transgression? Because so the verse says, you shall not eat upon the blood, meaning you shall not eat from the animal while its soul, which is referred to in the Torah, is still within it. Or it's an injunction to the Kohanim, you shall not, the, the priests in the temple, you shall not eat the meat of an offering while its blood has not been presented upon the altar. Or you shall not after the mourners, the, the person is buried, the Jewish people, and still different groups have it, they have something like a wake. People think, oh, only Christians have a wake. No, different Jewish communities also have that. After the burial, people come home and they have a big meal together. And Rabbi Dosa says, but if the person that was now buried is a person who was executed by the court because of some terrible crime, then you shouldn't have this wake because the wake is somehow in the benefit of the deceased. You shall not eat upon the blood, meaning you shall not eat a mourner's meal after the burial of one who is executed. Rabbi Akiva says, this verse refers to a Sanhedrin, meaning a court that killed the soul that sentenced someone to death. The judges may not taste anything the entire day after they sentenced him. You shall not eat upon the blood. You sentenced somebody to death. You had to do it. The person really was coming to him, but you have to feel very bad about that and fast 
the day that you made that ruling. So in both of these cases, with the stumbling block before the blind, and not to eat the blood, not to have this thing with the demon. You see that it's being taken away by the rabbis from the original plain meaning of the verse. And it's being shifted to other things which are significant. But what happens to the plain meaning of the original verse? Okay, so this is a thing that is some a phenomenon within rabbinic literature that the rabbis wanted to relate to different issues and different problems and different challenges in their own life. And they took it away from the original meaning and applied the verse to different cases. Now, a third case which we have before us indicates the beginning of how to resolve this. In the book of Psalms, it says, Gird your sword upon your thigh, mighty one, your glory and your splendor. Okay, so it's like a nobleman coming in medieval or early modern times. They come out in full dress, and they have a sword on their thigh, and that sword is part of their costume that shows how important and great they are. And then there's an interesting discussion in the Mishnah, which Rav Shmuley is very conversant with, that says, okay, there's a rule that You're not supposed on Shabbat, if there's no Eruv, to carry things out to, from the private to the public areas. And the Mishnah says, it's written in the year 200, just as it is prohibited for a woman to carry out certain items unique to a woman into the public domain, the sages said that a man may not go out on Shabbat with a sword, nor with a bow, nor with a shield, nor with a club, apparently, nor with a spear. And the rabbi said, you can't go out on Shabbat. But Rabbi Eliezer, who was a great rabbi in the first century, said, these weapons are ornaments for him. So just like a woman could wear jewelry, and it's part of her dress, it's not something that she's carrying, earrings, necklace, and so on, a man could on Shabbat go out with a sword because this is a decoration which is, shows how nice and manly he is. But the rabbi said, no. There is na weapons are nothing other than reprehensible. In the future, they will be eliminated as it is written and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not raise sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. So weapons might at best be some unhappy necessity, which 
in situations of conflict, we need to defend ourselves. But it's not an ornament. It's not something nice. It's not something good. And therefore, you can't just wear it as a decoration on Shabbat. But clearly, Rabbi Eliezer feels differently. He feels it is an ornament. And in about the year 300 in Iraq, which is where all the great rabbis of the Talmud lived, one great rabbi, Rav Abaye, said to a different one, Rav Dimi, what is the ground for the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer who said these weapons are ornaments? And he answered, is this written, gird your sword upon your thigh, mighty one, your glory and your splendor. So the sword is an ornament. So the rabbi Eliezer has ground for his view that what? That a sword or some other weapon, lots of times it was decorated, they had a very inlaid sword sheath and so on. So this is something that is a decoration. It's like a jewelry, okay? And that's, the other rabbis say no. It's a necessary evil at best. At this point, the Talmud records that a certain person called Rabbi Kahana, nothing to do with Mayor Kahana, said, is that a proof? This verse is written in reference to matters of Torah and should be understood as a metaphor. When it says the brave person should have a sword and that's his splendor, that means who's the brave person? A rabbi who's engaged in halachic study and debate. And what is his sword? Good arguments. So this verse means that a rabbi should always have good arguments to arm himself for debate. It has nothing to do with somebody that's wearing a physical sword and coming out in public to show how manly he is. And so, the other rabbi, Mar Baravhuna, said, just a minute. It's true that this verse has a metaphorical meaning that a rabbi should always arm himself with good arguments. But that doesn't mean that the original plain meaning is not in force. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. A verse does not depart from its literal meaning, although there may be additional interpretations. At this point, Rav Kahana said, I was 18 years old and already learned the entire Talmud and yet I did not know that a verse does not depart from its literal meaning until now. So what has he now discovered? That the same verse at the same time could have metaphorical meanings which are logically valid and in force. And at the same time, the verse retains 
its original meaning also. So it's not you have to choose either that or this. Both meanings are valid. Depending, forgive me, depending upon whose opinion this is and what table you're sitting at. Correct? Well, in, uh, obviously there can be debate. Is this the plain meaning? Or if there are several metaphorical meanings, which one? If I have to choose, which one do I buy into? And this rabbi can say this right. So it could be a matter of debate. Yes. But he would say, in any case, the argument that because we took this verse with a metaphorical meaning and we use it does not imply that we now have lost the validity and the power of the original verse. Um, and this comes out in a fourth and last example, which I will be presenting here. It says in the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, parents shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their parents. A person shall be put to death only for his own crime. It says that. And we know it's a rare instance. Most of the Bible, you read through the Bible, it makes no reference to the rules that we find in Torah. It's very rare that the Bible will say, but the Torah, it happens, but it's very rare. And this is one of those instances. King Yehoash was assassinated. His son Amatzia caught the assassins and executed them. And then the Bible says, but the son, he did not put to death the children of the assassins in accordance with what was written in the book of the teachings of Moses, Sefer Torah Moshe, where the Lord commanded, commanded parents shall not be put to death for their children, or children be put to death for their parents. So in biblical times, this was understood with the plain meaning. The assassins killed the king. They get punished in many other countries and many other situations. Not only them, their whole family get swiped out because they tried to kill, they succeeded, in fact, in killing the king. Yes, please. Doesn't it say somewhere that um, the, the sins of the parents should not be visited on the children? So um, It says exactly that. Yeah. So. Um, on the other hand, if we were already raising it, um, uh, during the high holidays, it's frequently recited the 13 attributes of mercy of God. Hashem, Hashem, El Rachum Vechanun. And then the end is Venake. Uh, okay, Venake meaning, and he doesn't take revenge. But that's cut off because the original verse continues Boked Avon Avot Al Banim, Al Shileshim Val Ribeim. God visits the sins of the parents on the second, third, and fourth generation. <laughs> so how we deal with that, that's a big issue. But in principle, we hold, and the verse holds, that whatever God does or doesn't do, we don't do that. We don't visit, we shouldn't visit the sins of the parents upon the future generations. And this is exactly how Amatia, king of Judea, like in minus 800 
That's how he dealt with this issue. Now, the Talmud itself, um, there's a story in the Bible about the Givonim, the Gibeonites. Okay, the Gibeonites heard that Joshua was conquering the land of Canaan, and they were very worried that he would destroy them. So what did they do? They dressed up as if they had come from a very faraway land, and they said, we're not Canaanites. We came from far away because we heard how great the God of Israel was, and we want to be your allies. And Joshua and the leaders of Israel made a pact with them. A couple of days later, it turned out that they had been fooled because these Gibeonites were really local yokels. So the Gibeonites continued to live under the rule of the Israelite tribes and then the Israelite monarchy. And then in the time of King David, there was a terrible famine. And David, through a prophet, asked God, what's the cause of this famine? He says, because King Saul, your predecessor, mistreated the Givonites, the Givonim. So what should David do? He had to ask the Givonites how to set things right. And he came to them and they said, we want seven of the descendants of King Saul to be crucified. So the whole thing of crucifixion doesn't exist in the then. But everybody was dying by hunger like flies. So King David did that. He took seven of Saul's descendants and crucified them. It's a very shocking story. You could read it in the book of Samuel. And the Talmud says, just a minute, how could he take the descendants of Saul, of King Shaul, and do that to them? The Torah says you can't visit the sins of the father upon the children. So obviously the Talmud itself is taking this at face value that that's the plain meaning of the verse. But later on, the Gemara says, that's the last page you have before us, from where is this matter that relatives are disqualified from bearing witness derived? Okay, my brother in court can't bear witness either for me or against me. For me, because maybe he's on my side. Against me, because maybe he has some family grudge against me and he's going to use it in court. So relatives can't be witnesses according to the Jewish tradition. But where does it say that in the Torah? It doesn't say it. So the rabbi says, so what's the source of that rule? They say, it says the fathers should not be put to death for the children. Oh, that's well known. So we, didn't, we don't need, if that verse comes to teach that the father should not be put to death for the sin of the children, that's known. Because it says every man shall be put to death for his own sin. So we have to interpret this differently. The statement fathers shall not be put to death for the children can be interpreted to mean they shall not be put to death by the testimony of the children. Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers, meaning by the testimony of the fathers. So they took away the plain meaning of the verse, 
and they're using it to establish rules of evidence. But does that now mean that we can take children and punish them for the sins of their fathers? No. So what do all of these instances teach us? That within the tradition, the rabbinic tradition and the biblical tradition, and we are continuers of that tradition today, one verse can simultaneously have many meanings. Okay, there was a great Sephardic rabbi uh, who in the 19th century wrote like a play in which he tells that a certain Jewish leader in Tunisia organized, this is a place, a work of fiction, a meeting of all the Jews and the representatives of all the Jews in the world to talk about modern conditions and Jewish responses. And in this imaginary convention, one of the people representing a Jewish group from Europe says, you know, Maimonides holds that one of the principles of the Jewish faith is that Torah is eternal and shall never change. But that fellow says, we can't hold to that in modern conditions. Change is happening all the time. We can't hold that Torah can't change because if Torah can't change, then we're stuck somewhere in the past and we can never move forward. So we have to do away with this proposition that Torah is eternal and it can't change. Whereupon, the individual in the play who represents the author says no. He says, Torah is eternal. It will never change. But it's divine. Therefore, it holds an infinite number of possible meanings. Because God is infinite. And God gave the Torah in a way that any verse can accept multiple meanings in multiple contexts. And it's the job of the learned and the rabbis to determine which of these meanings should be applied under a specific current condition and context so that simultaneously this is Rabbi Eliyahu Hazan, who when he died in 1908 was chief rabbi of Alexandria and Egypt. He says, therefore, there's no tension between the idea that Torah is eternal and will never change, and the idea that the meanings that we find within Torah can be all the time new and different. Precisely because if Torah is divine, it can have infinite meanings. And therefore, getting back here, we see that the same verses, okay, the same verses have various meanings attributed to them, but these are not mutually exclusive. And this is all cases that have been dealt with in the literature. And now, this is my proposal. The same way that these different cases were dealt with in the literature, 
is how we should understand the issue of the verses that tell us to be nice and friendly and supportive of the gear. Which gear are we talking about? Is it the alien, stranger, non-Jewish, or the convert who used to be not Jewish and is now Jewish? Which gear is the Torah talking about? So what I'm saying is that we now, faced with the situation that we have converts, but we also have a Jewish polity in which there are aliens in the original meaning, should now realize that the verse covers both the convert and the alien, and by Extending the coverage to the convert, we don't necessarily have to pull away the coverage from the original gear, the alien. And um, so before I finish, I'll be happy to take questions or comments or whatever. Um, okay, because it's me that's making this move. It's not uh, some giant rabbi. Um, but I have one question before I open the floor. Okay, the question, and I'm well within the time boundaries. Okay, so my question is, okay, everybody knows that in Israel, the Jews are sovereign. It's a sovereign Jewish state, and therefore this issue should clearly apply there. Who is sovereign in the United States of America? Are Jews sovereign in the United States of America? And I would respectfully argue that no less than any other people. That's the meaning of democracy. It's not a land of the going. And the Jews are somehow living here on suffrage. It's the land of the Jews no less than it's the land of anybody else. And therefore, if this commandment applies to places where Jews have sovereignty and it guides Jews how to treat aliens in Israel, it should guide Jews how to relate to aliens in any context in which the Jews are not they're on the suffrage of the Gentiles, but they're part of the political ground of the state. Um, um, you want to? So maybe you tell people who. Okay, so we'll start around here, okay? Um, when we talk about converts, and specifically in Israel, there's been a lot of controversies, as I know you know, that. Um, not every Jew is considered a Jew under halakha. And so how do, how do the Orthodox um, reconcile that with Muslims? Because if you're not, if you weren't converted by an Orthodox rabbi, they may not consider you a Jew. Well. But not even just conversion, just the hundreds of thousands of Russians. Well, Russian, right. Okay, so, so those are two different things, right? So the. Orthodox in Israel 
don't have any problem with that because they say, if a person is a gear, if the person is a convert, we have to be nice to them. But these people aren't converts. They just have been misguided by the reform or whoever to think that they're converts, but they're really not converts. So they don't come into that category. We're not worried about that. And about the Russians, they say, well, they may be aliens. But the verse doesn't hold its original meaning about non-Jewish aliens in a Jewish state. They, the verse has been taken to true blue converts, and they're not that either. So, so they're, not treated, they're not treated. I mean, like if a convert wants to get married in Israel. Under and they're not an Orthodox convert. Or they are an Orthodox convert, but from a certain rabbi that the Orthodox establishment in Israel doesn't like. So they don't count them in. So they're not covered by the verse, so they don't worry about it. <laughs> um, uh, I, I have lots of questions, but I want to wait for other people to address some. Do you have any questions? How is it applied to the question of opinion and view in relationship with the Palestinian, um, the Israeli Muslims, who are a part of the state that are would they fall under this? Well, and to just extend that a step further, would Palestinian non-Israeli citizens, um, if you lump them all together, ever have the status of gear? Is it only a status of minority living within our sovereignty? Or could it also be in a broader framework, even a majority, because they're almost an equal number when you put it all together, equal greater, whatever the numbers are. Like, could that still be gear if you have sovereignty over a majority? Okay, so. Um, um, I have a draft article about this that I wrote, and if anybody, I'm willing to, I could send it to Rav Shmuley, and he could send it to anybody that wants. Okay, so in this article, I consider this issue, which is obviously a very important issue, and um, my reading is that there's other verses in the Torah that relate to indigenous minorities. But the Gair is an alien, just like the Jews were not indigenous to Egypt. Abraham was not indigenous to Eretz Yisrael when he's saying, I'm a Gair. A Gair is somebody that came from somewhere else. And so that in the context of, for instance, the United States of America, um, a person who is an immigrant and came to America from elsewhere falls under the category of gear, an American Indian doesn't. American Indian obviously is in a minority. They have to have good treatment. God knows that uh, if you go to museums about the Indians, including one here in Phoenix, you see how the Native American population was mistreated, and certainly that was not right, and we shouldn't be certainly continuing that in any way, but they are not a gear. If anything, we're American Jews are gayrim compared to the American Indians. So the Torah has verses talking about resident indigenous peoples. Okay, and that's that's a whole issue. But on my reading, the gear that is being talked about here, like you are a gear, an alien in Egypt, would not include 
uh, indigenous inhabitants of Eretz Israel, like Muslims, and they would be covered by other issues, and Rabbi Chaim David Levi, uh, I'm going to be talking about that in Tucson next Thursday, a week from today, <laughs> uh, about various rabbis' positions on how Israel should treat local non-Jewish people. Okay, so that's, that's my answer to this specific question. Uh, yes, please. Uh, are, so just, I'm just supposing about this stuff. But that, that, that move would limit protections, right? Because no, it would come, they would get protection, but under a different... But there's dozens, there's dozens of protections for Gary. It's so built into the system. But if you say, like, like indigenous populations, like Torah pro protections, I, I, I mean, it's just because I'm not learned enough. The verse doesn't even come to mind, you know? Well, there is a concept which the rabbis developed based on other verses than these of Ger Toshav. Yeah. Uh, Ger Toshav is an indigenous person who didn't come from somewhere or anybody else, and here he's living here. Oh, but Ger Toshav, oh, oh, so you're treating the first category as Ger Tzedek as opposed to Ger Toshav? No. There's now three categories. There's Ger Tzedek is a convert. Ger Toshav is an indigenous person who has been living there all along. And the original Ger is like the Israelites in Egypt. They came from somewhere else and are sojourners in an alien environment to where they came from. So Abraham came from Iraq. Isaac couldn't already said, I'm a Ger, because he was born here. Uh, but when the Israelites came to Egypt, they could be a Ger, okay? Well, well, the Jews were in Egypt, so, so they were considered the, Okay, while the Jews were in Egypt, had, for instance, the Egyptians said, wonderful, become part of us, we love you, join us, become Egyptians, and they had assimilated into Egyptian society and become, regarded themselves as native Egyptians, and the native Egyptians had accepted them as part of the Egyptian population, the Torah wouldn't be able to say this. But, but weren't the Jews under Joseph in those first generations in that situation before there was a different Pharaoh who no longer... Well, at point one, the Jews, I mean, the Jews, the brothers, the Israelite brothers, the tribes, who came, immigrated from Eretz Israel to Egypt got preferential treatment because they were aliens. Why? Because they had somebody that was very close to them in high authority. So they got, as aliens, better conditions than the Egyptians, right? E Joseph, which is an old, subjugated all of the, according to the Bible, the plain meaning of the Bible, I'm not talking about history, subjugated the entire Egyptian population to sell themselves as slaves or his serfs to Pharaoh, right? He did that partially. He could do that because he didn't feel any empathy for them. He was Pharaoh's man. He was acting as Pharaoh's agent. And all of these people who are now selling themselves out of hunger to be serfs, eternal serfs of Pharaoh, that wasn't skin off Joseph's back. But his brothers weren't in that status. The Torah says only the priests of Egypt wouldn't become serfs. 
but there were other people that didn't become serfs, the brothers of Joseph. So later on, the Egyptians resented this, and that could be a good interpretation of, well, they wanted to enslave them. They were enslaved. How come these people aren't enslaved? They also have to be slaves. Uh, so, but all along, the Israelites were regarded as aliens. They saw themselves as aliens. The other Egyptians saw themselves as aliens. Uh, and um, uh, so they're not from there. They're not from Egypt. And that's the sense that we're being told to treat the Gair nicely because he's not from here. He came from somewhere else. He's out of place. He's out of sync. He needs good support and uh, favorable treatment because of his specially vulnerable uh, position. So what is the ground for treating indigenous non-Jews, and they're mostly Arab Muslims and some Druze and some Christian Arabs and so on, for treating them well in a Jewish state? There are grounds. OK, but that's not from these sources. Sorry. Meaning the original aliens and the original meaning. Okay. Do they, whoever the gear is, when we embrace them, do they have obligations to us? To embrace us, to love us. Number three, and here's my irreverent silliness. If I were rich enough to own the Arizona Cardinals state, uh, Diamondbacks baseball team and went to another city, I'd call them the Okay, so the first thing is, were there any verses that the rabbis didn't take metaphorically? Yes, for instance, you're not supposed to worship alien gods. Uh, there is no god except for the Lord creator. Um, and then there's verses that they played it both ways. For instance, uh, is a verse that says, uh, if somebody murders somebody else, you can't take ransom for the blood of the murdered person. A life for a life. Nefesh tachat nefesh. And the rabbis held to that. They're, in principle, they recognized capital punishment. In the end, they made it a very, very, very rare occurrence. If it happens once in seven or in 70 years, that's but in principle, they held that you can't take ransom, blood money, which is very common in the many countries, including the Middle East, for somebody that was murdered. But that same verse goes on to say, okay, nefesh tachat nefesh, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand. And all of that, the rabbis said, is never according to the plain meaning. It's only a metaphor, meaning you have to have compensation, the worth, the value of an eye, 
the value of a tooth and so on. They wouldn't let somebody physically put out somebody's eye because they lost their eye in a fight with that person. So the same verse, so you see the rabbis were operating, they had an independent judgment. When they did that, they did that. It's not metaphorical. A knife is, can't be bought. But an eye, compensation. A tooth, compensation. A hand, compensation. And the second thing about did the gerim have any obligations? Yes. Obviously, if somebody is a ger tzedek, a convert, they have the same obligations as any other Jew. No difference. But if we're talking about an alien resident, they have to follow the law of the land. OK, they can't say, because I came, for instance, from Iraq, okay, and I'm now living in Italy, if Italy was a Jewish state, the law of Italy doesn't apply to me. I only have to go according to the law of Iraq. OK, no, you're living here. The law of the land applies to you. You have to be a law-abiding citizen in the state that you are now living in. Um, yes, please. Oh, a uh, couple of things. Um, forgive me. Um, I'm assuming that this issue that we're talking about tonight is a much more discussed issue in Israel than it may be in the United States or throughout the world because it applies so much to the idea of the Jewish state and because of the influx of so many people that are seeking refuge into Israel. Or seeking work. Right, there's a lot of people that are seeking work from Thailand, from uh, many places, because, I mean, when I was a child, I was nine years old, my parents moved to Israel. That was many, many, many years ago, and they knew that they were going to a third world economy because they were Zionists. Now, to my great surprise, that's not the situation. So people from third world economies are wanting to come to Israel because it's an advance, it advances their economic situation. There also is true or false, a lot of people seeking asylum in Israel coming from Africa at the moment. Yes, so a lot of people coming from Africa are seeking asylum, and then there's a lot of debate, and it's also in the legal system. Is it really the case that in their countries of origin, these people are in fact specifically under uh, threat of death or violence, or they're using this as a ploy. So the courts sometimes rule like that, depending on the case. But yes, there are people who say, I'm in need of asylum because in the country where I come from, if I go back, they'll kill me. And the truth is, in Israel, these are real, palatable problems. Right. Versus some of what we read, and you probably saw me smiling with the rabbis arguing about this or about that, where it started to sound like they come, with, <coughs> they come up with whatever works, but, but this is not a whatever works issue. Now, it's not a whatever works issue. 100 years ago, it was. In fact, even 50 or 60 years ago, who would come to Israel to seek economic advancement? <laughs> right? Uh, now, Baruch Hashem, yes. Uh, so it is a real life issue. Now, of course, we all know that assuming that Jewish people in the United States are no less sovereign than Christians or atheists or whatever in the United States because democracy rests on the people and Jews are part of that. So 
the Jewish people in America who are part of the sovereignty of the United States of America, the question is in what way they, as Jews, should be guided by this pasuk in dealing with people like that who come to the United States. Yes, please. I don't think it's a question. First of all, I think we're, we're taught to treat, treat the stranger who comes to our country in, in America. That's it, period, to treat him to open up because we were slaves in the land of Egypt. I don't think there's any question about that. And secondly, uh, this differentiation as a convert being a gear is really not accepted in this country, at least in modern American Judaism. We don't, once you're in, you're in. And, and I think that's pretty much the attitude of, of most, certainly of most liberal Americans. No, 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 I agree with you that once you're in, you're in, right. but then. When you look at the real life situation of what happens to a lot of people that chose to become Jewish and they now join a congregation, sometimes, not infrequently, it's difficult for them to feel at home there. Their families are not part of that congregation because their families remained in other faith groups or other ethnic groups, uh, especially by their people of color. In the United States, unlike Israel, it's very, many people feel, well, we know what Jews look like. Um, but, uh, and pe people like that, it's not easy for them to be part of the Jewish community. With the 70% intermarriage rate, we, we're, we, we're forced to become more welcoming. And I think we're, we're doing a, a pretty good job about that. I have one other question that's not relevant. But please explain the derivation of your last name. Love? The derivation of your last name. Uh, my last name? Yes. Um, okay, my last name, um, uh, Zohar, was chosen by my uh, parents uh, when they moved to Israel because at that time uh, er, er, people in Israel were being encouraged to Hebraize their original names. Um, and people that were like Schwarz became Shahor. Weiss became Lavan, and so on and so forth. And therefore, my parents chose a name which had some joint meaning with their original name. Uh, yes, please. So related to this issue of who's on the inside, who's on the outside. And I think there's lots of ways to describe what the Jewish community is plagued by today internally. But one way to describe it is one of our challenges that I think many of us would identify are sort of ultra-exclusivists, uh, let's call them, or ultra-nationalists. We might call these Haredi, uh, uh, a Haredi culture, that everyone is outside and has a, a lot of distance, or a settler culture that really has a very ethnocentric notion of who's on the out outside, uh, a very tribalistic notion of what Judaism is, and basically we don't care about outsiders, we care about just who's inside. But there's another problem we talk about less, we've seen a lot among a lot of American Jewish millennials and beyond that as well, which is basically totally uncomfortable with difference, right? I'm uncomfortable being a part of the Jewish community because that's different. We're all the same, right? A radical universalistic approach. And that, and I see that a lot with young people in their 20s and teens. Educationally, I don't know what to do with exactly. How do we actually, for what might be obvious for me and many in the room, I'm proud to be a Jew, and that's different from being something someone who's not a Jew, but I also care about other folks who aren't Jews. Like, that's like so basic to me. But that's really difficult for a lot of people. Either they're like, I'm a Jew and everyone else is outside, I don't care about them, 
before, like, I'm just a human. And the idea of, like, being labeled something else is, like, offensive, you know? So I wonder if you, if you think at all about that educationally. Um, well, as I said in an earlier, I think this gentleman was there in an earlier talk today, perhaps. Okay, so to my understanding, the Jews are not a religion and they're not a nation. They're basically a uh, kinship group. An extended family. Okay, now, what if we said, why should we have families? Why should anybody have special affection or connection or care, especially about their father, their mother, their brothers, their sisters? We're all human beings. We should treat everybody equally. And therefore, if somebody is in need, my mother is very hungry, or some homeless person on the street is very hungry, they're both very hungry, so there's no reason to be especially considerate to my mother. Okay, my kid is sick and he needs medicine. Okay, so there's no reason to be especially considerate of my kid as opposed to someone else. So what do we need families for? So there's, right, there's a book, Brave New World. We don't need families. Everybody's the same. Now, I think that most people when they thought about it, would agree that there's a very good reason and a just, an ethical justification and a moral justification that people's connection and loyalty operates in concentric rings. Okay? So it's me and my wife and children. That's one ring. Then my parents, my brothers, sisters. Then I have cousins. Then I have neighbors, and so on and so forth. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't care or I shouldn't care. It's no skin off my back, all the people dying in Africa. But the notion of loyalty and commitment is developed through people first having local strong connections and then extending this. But by extending this, we're not replacing the fact and if we didn't have families, we didn't have relationships within kinship groups. So that's my response, okay? It would, it's an impoverished view of humanity in which everybody has the same sense of commitment to their brothers and sisters and anybody else on the planet. And Everybody else, all societies are organized that way, and it's fine. It, does, it shouldn't mean that we don't care about the rest of the people out there. The notion of concentric circles of loyalty and care, I think, is very natural and morally justified. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Well, first of all, um, in most areas of life, despite what we see in the newspapers, the real life 
effect of the official institutional rabbinate in Israel upon the daily life of most people is negligible. Unless in matters that they want to get married, the rabbinate really doesn't determine how anybody's going to live. Most of the religious people don't care about the rabbinate. <laughs> the Haredi don't care about the rabbinate except to get jobs. Uh, and secular people in Israel can do whatever they can, eat whatever they want, they can sleep with whoever they want, they can. Uh, so the real life effect of. So in Israel, also basically the connection to the Bible and Torah and, Rab, uh, and the teachings of the great rabbis of the generations is a voluntary issue. That being said, people who care about these things and recognize the value and insights and wisdom of the tradition should want that this should have some influence on how they deal with general moral human political issues that they shouldn't be in a dichotomy. Okay, and this side I'm Jewish and that side I'm a completely something else. Okay, so that, that's one way of understanding the German Jewish Orthodox view of Samson Raphael Hirsch of Torah in Derech Eretz, the Torah is one thing, and Derech Eretz, the human general culture is something else, and never the twain shall meet because I'm a Jew at home, and a, but that dichotomy is very difficult and probably not very healthy. So without seeking to impose anything on other people and force other people to follow, but uh, it certainly, and in that sense also secular Israelis, in the best sense, can and should take, derive guidelines from the Jewish culture without, because it's commanded by God, how to live a, a better and, and more just life. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.